Also, Easter is coming here in a few weeks and we are working our way in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 16 and the resurrection of Christ. But today we see the the trial of Jesus, the Roman trial of Jesus before Pilate. Now, it is interesting, in recent years, our country has become very interested in our judicial system. We have Judge Judy and other judges like that. We have cable channels entirely devoted to showing court in session. But our main preoccupation as our country, though, is really involving the not the great cases of morality or matters of principle, but the trials of celebrities. Um, I might date some of you now. Do you remember the trial of O.J. Simpson? Right, some of you, that was kind of like the big trial, the, the coming out trial, I, I think. It wasn't the first trial in which TV cameras were in the courtroom, um, but it was certainly one of the most famous early on. And, and um, as that trial was going on, I was working as a computer programmer um, for a, a company. And as we were sitting there in the group office, we normally had WBBM on, News Radio 78, and they, they broadcast the... Um, the trial live, and so I got to hear quite a bit of the trial. They were giving updates of it at particular times. It kind of come in, and that's just what was was around. And um, by the time the verdict was announced, I had switched jobs. I was working uh, as a systems analyst for a hospital, and uh, I remember when the verdict was come out, um, we had about 20 people gathered in this room, and uh, were there watching to see whether he'd be declared innocent or guilty, and. Uh, you know, I remember when the, the, the judgment came out and he's declared innocent. There's kind of shock in the room. We didn't know what, what to believe. And some people said, I knew it. I, I knew it. And some people said, I couldn't believe it. And, and just to kind of this all, all this shock came out about O.J. Simpson. And, and what I thought was really special uh, was that the, the head of the dietary department was there in there watching that verdict with us. And, and when he was declared innocent, he said, for the rest of the week, we have free orange juice at the hospital. <laughs> Right, free OJ. OJ was free for those of you who don't get it. It was it was a brilliant, brilliant marketing move. Um, but since the OJ Simpson trial, there've been other high-profile celebrity cases: Scott Peterson, Michael Jackson, recent days Jody Arias, and I'm sure in some months to come, Oscar Pistorius. Right, the Blade Runner. This is going to be these trials are going to be broadcast all over, and much attention, even. Even Pistorius in South Africa, I'm sure there'll be much interest here in America what's taking place. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to look at the most famous, I would contend the most interesting, the most important trial of all time. I'm talking about the Roman trial of Jesus Christ. Filled with drama. Here you have an innocent man who's accused of, by an envious group of men. He stands before the highest court in the land. The outcome kind of hangs in the balance. At one point, it, it seems that he's going to be let free, and yet the other point, it seems he's going to be condemned, and it, it kind of goes back and forth. We, we don't really know how it's going to go. The, the, um, the procurate over everything seems to sway one way. The crowd pulls him, though, the other way. And before the trial's over, really the whole nation's involved, helping to announce the verdict and the punishment. Of course, I'm talking about the trial here in Mark 15, 1 through 21. We see Jesus standing before Pilate, Jesus had already been tried by the, the, um, the religious trials before the Sanhedrin. And actually, there were several phases of the religious trial. First, he stood before Annas, 
the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas, and then he stood before Caiaphas, and then before the whole Sanhedrin. In our text today, we're going to see the Roman trial. We're going to see the first and third phases right in the middle of this. He's actually going to go off. Mark doesn't even include this phase in the, the Roman trial. But here it is in our text. We're going to see Jesus standing before Pilate. And, and I want you to consider these verses and just consider what they teach about Jesus Christ. Mark 15, beginning at verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate. Pilate questioned Him, Are you the King of the Jews? And He answered Him, It is as you say. And the chief priest began to accuse Him harshly. And then Pilate questioned Him, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And so Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stood up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answer again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him, and after they mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. My message this morning is entitled, The Truth Comes Out. That is the aim of, of every trial that you have as you, you try to interrogate the witnesses and those involved in the crime to see what exactly happened. Let's let the truth rise up and let's understand then what really happened then the verdict can be discerned and announced. And in our text this morning, we're going to see four characteristics of Jesus that come out of the text, the truth about who Jesus is. Each of these characteristics of Jesus really are called to action for us this morning. So let's pick it up here in verse 1. I'm calling it Jesus is the Sovereign One. He is the Sovereign One. We see in verse 1 the scene of the inner chambers of the courtroom. The religious leaders have been trying Jesus. We're in consultation with each other. They're trying to determine, okay, what exactly now should we do with Jesus? What, what's the course of action that we should do based upon everything that we have heard? They had already said, we've seen that at the end of chapter 14 about how they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Verse 63, the high priest, upon hearing Jesus saying, I am the Blessed One, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, he tore his clothes 
and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him being deserving of death. He claimed to be the Messiah. He said, I'm going to come back on the clouds with my great power and authority. And they said, he's blaspheming. He is claiming the Messiah. We need to do something. Well, they counseled together here in verse 1. And they concluded they should send him off to Pilate. Well, they wanted to Pilate actually to put him to death. Right? Verse 64 says, they all condemned Jesus of his blasphemy as deserving of death. Now, they didn't have the authority to put him to death. They were Jewish people and uh, only the Romans could exercise capital punishment. But Pilate could. And so off to Pilate he went. And in verse 2, we find Jesus before Pilate. Pilate asks him this question, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, in reading Mark's account of the trial, it's like, well, where does this kingship come from? Why, why did Pilate focus on this? Well, the other gospel writers give us a complete narrative of more of what, what took place. They help to fill it out. Um, and they give us reason why it is that he focused here upon Jesus being the king of the Jews. So, Luke fills us in that the Jews had come to Pilate and told him of the wrong that Jesus had done. And in fact, the Jews were smart. They knew that the, the accusation of blasphemy, uh, this man claims to be the Christ, that wouldn't fly in a Roman government, in the Roman courtroom. Remember when Paul was standing before Agrippa, the Roman governor, the, the Jews were making an accusation against him, um, saying that he believed in the resurrection of the dead, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but of course that was not quite right. And Agrippa, the Roman governor, said, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. He said he would have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so then he passed him on to Caesar. In other words, it's just matters about your law. You can deal with that. I'm not going to condemn you on matters of your law. And those that brought Jesus before Pilate knew this, and so they came up with another charge that might resonate with Pilate. Here's what Luke said. They said to Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so even, you can pick it up here from Mark, about they're talking about Jesus being the Christ, being the, the Messiah, that he is a king. Now, you've got to catch the irony of these words. I mean, if these words are proved to be true, certainly then Jesus was no friend of Rome, being his own king. But those being against Rome and being a king isn't something that the religious leaders would naturally want to bring this person before Pilate. Because that wouldn't cause the religious leaders to be at odds with, with Jesus because the Jews hated the Romans. So any type of person who is causing insurrection or causing resistance against Rome would be loved by the Jewish leaders. But here was a man, they said, well, he's against you, right? So he's got to go up to the Romans. It just doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. And there's something deeper going on. Pilate understood there's something deeper going on. Yes, they're presenting Jesus to Pilate as one who's against Rome. But, but Pilate knew full well that the issue wasn't that Jesus was against Rome. Pilate knew full well that the issue was that Jesus was against the religious establishment. And that this was some type of charge then that could get him in trouble with the Roman government and of all the accusations brought before Pilate, he picks upon this aspect about becoming a king, about being a king. Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, with clarity, it is as you say. Yes, Pilate, I am the king of the Jews. That's all that Jesus says. And Jesus walked in this planet. He spoke much 
with kingdom terminology, spoke a lot about the kingdom. I mean, the main message of Mark really comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth that we read. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, it's all about the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom and those who are out of the kingdom. Mark chapter 4, an entire chapter devoted to what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus told His disciples how the Son of Man will come in His kingdom. Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 10, the characteristics of those who enter the kingdom. Right, You enter like a little child. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus challenged a rich man of what he needs to do in order to enter the kingdom. Jesus spoke that there would be those who would be in the kingdom and those who would be outside of the kingdom. And this is the terminology He used. In the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, He spoke about His return when He established His kingdom. And when celebrating the Passover with His disciples, He said, Mark chapter 14, verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And you say, why is Jesus speaking so much about the kingdom? Well, it's... Really quite simple because He Himself is the King of that kingdom. Frequently, Jesus presented Himself as the one who determined who gets in and who is not in the kingdom. And as King of the kingdom, Jesus is, here's my point, the Sovereign One. He is the King. He is the Sovereign One. That's where the truth is coming out. Where Jesus says to Pilate, it is you say, I am the King. He is the Sovereign One. And I want you to notice that Pilate got this. This was the official charge, the death of Jesus. The Romans used to place placards above those being crucified as to what their crime was so that those who walked by could see a succinct summary of why the person was on the cross. Right? He was a murderer or he was a thief or he was whatever. Something wrong there. And that's why they put him to death. And notice in verse 26 of Mark 15, the inscription and the charge against Jesus read, the King of the Jews. That means Jesus was killed for being King of the Jews. Like last week, right? Pilate got it exactly right. Jesus is the King. He's the Sovereign One. He's the One that rules and reigns overall. And I don't think this was an accident that Jesus was crucified for being King. I don't think it was an accident that the Jews found Jesus guilty of being the Messiah. And therefore guilty of blasphemy. The Jews got exactly right, but they got exactly wrong. Here the Roman trial is exactly the same. They charged him with being the king. He got exactly right. He is a king, but he got exactly wrong because he's a different kind of king than the king that would protest against Pilate. John's Gospel discusses how Jesus and Pilate talked about the kingdom. Jesus told Pilate, My kingdom is now this world. Jesus told Pilate that he has no authority except it has been given to him from above. Like, my, my, my kingship is bigger than yours, Pilate. And Pilate should have bowed his weak and feeble knees to Jesus right there because a bended knee is the proper way to respond to a king. But he refused and instead, as verse 15 says, delivered him over to be crucified. Now, Jesus at this moment hardly looked like a king. If you look back in chapter 14, verse 65... What they did to Jesus, they spit upon Him. They blindfolded Him and began to beat Him with their fists. And they said, and prophesy, right? Who it is that hit you? And the officers received them with slaps in the face. Jesus was beaten up a little bit 
before he came to Pilate. So when he came to Pilate, I would suspect that his face was bloodied a little bit. Right? He had red marks on his face. Um, he was blood streaming down his cheeks. He was uh, beaten down and he hardly looked like a king. We think about kings, right? We think about royal crowns, majestic robes, authoritative words, right? Servants scurrying about. We think of power and might. We don't think of someone beaten and humbled. But looks can be deceiving, right? Jesus was indeed the sovereign one. In Mark 16, we're going to see him raised from the dead. He will ascend to heaven and he will come and rule and reign someday. But the picture of Jesus standing before Pilate is really a great picture for us to think about Jesus today. Because though Jesus is the sovereign one right now, he, um, he doesn't exert his rule for all to see. In fact, even the, the world appears to be in such rebellion against Jesus right now. His commands aren't being carried out. Little respect for him. The vast majority of the time his name is used is used in vain. It's a curse word rather than a praise word. And that's what his kingdom is like today. That's what the kingdom was like when Jesus was standing before Pilate. Pilate had all the authority over him and Jesus was humble. Though he was the sovereign one. So it looked like on the day. And so obvious it was the charge of him being a king. I mean, it should have been dismissed. I mean, here was Jesus. He's not a king. He should have said to the religious leaders, this is your king? Look at how beaten down he is. He has no power. Where are his followers? If you're a king, you've got to have followers. They were all gone. They had all deserted him. So we saw the last desert him, Peter. Right? Chapter 14, verse 72. And Peter denied him and left and wept. Jesus had no followers. He had no kingship. He wasn't powerful. He was down and... And beaten. Should have been dismissed. But there will be a day where that all changes. When Jesus, the sovereign one, comes back and begins to assert his reign. All of his subjects will be glad on that day. And those who rebelled against the King of kings and Lord of lords will find themselves in trouble on that day. And the lesson for us really clear. Jesus is the sovereign one. Let us submit to him. Let us do what Pilate should have done. Really, this is the only way to obtain salvation is submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Turn away from trusting your ways, but trust His ways. Believe in Him. Bow your knee. Love and worship Jesus. He is worthy of all of our affection and all of our praise. He is the Sovereign One. Let us submit to Him. Well, we see in verses 3-5, through Jesus is the Silent One. And this is really amazing. Mark records for us in verse 3 how the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. In verse 4, Pilate questioned him, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? And through it all, we read in verse 5 that Jesus made no further answer. So the result is, verse 5, that Pilate was amazed. Let's just think about what's happening here. It says in verse 3 that the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. The New American Standard has um, in the, the side reading, they, they were um, questioning him of many things. Polus, just lots. 
of lots of things, lots, lots of words, lots of things, lots of charges coming against you. And so Pilate says, do you, do you see how many charges they bring against you? Just over and over, like, like waves coming upon a seashore, just coming again and again of accusation after accusation after accusation. Jesus is just getting pounded. I mean, can you imagine a little bit what it's like? Right, the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees were there yelling at Jesus. Jesus, you said you could tear down this temple and build it up in three days ago. Well, when are you going to desecrate these wonderful buildings that Herod, may he live forever, built for us? You're going to desecrate these, these wonderful buildings for us? And then another would say, Jesus, you told us you're king. No, but Pilate is our king and Caesar is our king. Pilate's our governor. We, we have no other except for them. How can you claim to be king, Jesus? You're being tried in a Roman's court. What, what do you say for yourself now? In fact, you're not even a lawful Roman citizen. How can you be king? When asked about paying taxes, you said we shouldn't pay taxes, Jesus. Why don't you come out and tell this to Pilate? Are you scared, Jesus? Jesus, you're a lawbreaker. We have sacred tradition been handed down for our fathers. And you transgress them. You eat bread without washing your hands first. You've broken the Sabbath. You associate with sinners. You don't fast like our fathers told us to fast. You pick grain on the Sabbath. You heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. You're no Jew. You're betraying our nation. In fact, you are a wicked man, Jesus. You're casting out demons. You're casting out demons by the name of Beelzebub. You are probably in cahoots with the ruler of the demon themselves. And maybe others were saying, right? Jesus refused to obey us. We're the religious leaders. And Jesus, you're a peon and you've never obeyed us. We've asked you to give us a sign and you've disobeyed us. We've asked you to tell the people to stop worshiping. You and you've allowed them to continue. We've asked you many, many questions and refused to answer us. We asked you for the source of your authority and you don't tell us that. You are a rebellious child of Israel. You're a disgrace to our people. It's a shame that you call your name a Jew. Pilate, we present this man to you. He's a rebellious man. He's rebelled to our authority. He's rebelling against you as well. And we suggest that you dispose of him today. That's a little bit of what was happening. That sort of rant as they were many things, questioning him harshly again and again. And to all these things, Jesus made no answer. You know, the natural response of all of us is to defend ourselves. When a wrong is pointed out in us, even if the wrong is real, we stir up, right, to, to defend ourselves and defend our actions. And how much more so even when the accusations come false. I know when I'm accused of a wrong, of a sin I committed, my tendency is to, is to put up walls and start defending myself. The, 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 battle, the battle's been drawn. I'm going to defend my sin. It's my tendency to point out a speck in your eye and missed a log in mine. And I know that's your tendency as well. And it takes great self-denial to remain silent when being accused, especially when those accusations are false. Uh, I remember years back um, being accused falsely of something. Someone called me up and just said, Steve, we've got to talk about, about something you did. And, and I'm like, I'm trying to remember what it is that I did. And I, I couldn't remember what I did. I... And uh, the reason I couldn't remember what I did is because I never did it. 
And, and then when they, people came and accused me of this, I mean, I just found, found myself I just anxious and ready to lash out. And they, they accused me wrongly. And I, I stood up and I defended myself about how that wasn't the case. Um, how, how easy it is. It, 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 it was. It was. It was ridiculous. It was just a misunderstanding. It wasn't even, wasn't even close. And, but I remember just how much I wanted to defend myself and even go on the offensive then and an attack but Jesus was so good at just, just quiet. He was fully capable of refuting every one of these accusations. He could have demonstrated how everyone was false, how he was being slandered in every single one of these things. He could have turned them upon the chief priests, on the elders, made them look like fools. But listen, to do so would have meant they wouldn't have gone to the cross. And Jesus knew he had to go to the cross because the hour had come and so Jesus was silent and it amazed Pilate. And the reason it amazed Pilate is because it was so contrary to human nature. And thereby Jesus, who kept his tongue and didn't stumble in what he said, proved himself to be the perfect man. He was able to keep silent, even when being accused unjustly. And remaining silent, he fulfilled Scripture, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And that ended really the, the first phase of the Roman trial. From other Gospel accounts, we learn that Jesus, right here after verse 5, was, was carted off to Herod at this point, who happened to be in town. And Herod questioned Jesus as well. And Jesus kept his mouth quiet before Herod as well. Listen to what Luke's testimony is. Luke 23, verses 8 through 11. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he'd wanted to see him for a long time because he was hearing about him, was hoping to see some sign performed by him, and he questioned him at some length. But he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Quiet before Herod. Thus ends the second phase of the Roman trial. And the third phase is beginning here in verse 6. But through it all, Jesus was silent. He was a meek and humble lamb prepared to be the sacrifice that Phil read of for us earlier. The Passover lamb. Should Jesus have spoken, He would have stopped the trial in its tracks. You remember when the religious leaders came up to trick Jesus with the most difficult theological questions that were to stump Him. And Jesus every time turned the table, so much so that nobody dared from that day on to venture to ask Him any more questions. If Jesus would have defended Himself with the trial, no one would have dared from that day on to accuse Him anymore. And He wouldn't have died for our sins. How important it was that He remained silent. And, and like our first point, Jesus is the sovereign one. We need to submit to Him. The second point, Jesus is the silent one. The facts come out. There is an application for us as well. Jesus is silent. He, his voice isn't booming out right now. Jesus isn't thundering wrath to the world for all its rebellion against Him. His words certainly are on the pages of the Bible. They're waiting to be read, waiting to be expounded. He's sitting at the right hand waiting for His enemies to make a footstool for His feet. There'll be a time when He returns. There'll be a time for Jesus to speak. But it's not now. In the meantime, the application is clear. If He's the silent one, we ought to wait for Him. Wait for Him to come. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Wait for Him to come when He finally opens His mouth and heaven and earth open up. Sky 
be rolled back like a scroll and He comes for His own. And as Jesus was patient and meek and humble, we ought to wait in patience and humility and hope for Him. That's a testimony of ours of God's people. The Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word do I hope. Psalm 25, verse 5, You are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all day long. Psalm 37, verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. If He's the silent one, we just need to wait because there will be a day when He erupts. But let's wait for Him for that day. The truth is coming out. Jesus is not only the sovereign one, He's not only the silent one, He's also the rejected one. In light of full view of who Jesus is, He's obviously rejected. Couldn't be any clearer. Rejected by the Romans, rejected by the Jewish people. And we see the third phase of the Roman trial coming right here. And Pilate knew two things at this point. First of all, he knew that he was innocent. That was clear. Verse 14 says, "Why? what evil has he done? And second, Pilate knew that the religious leaders were trying to pull a fast one. Verse 10, we read that it was because of envy that they handed Jesus over. In other words, the religious leaders hated Jesus. That's why they turned him in. And so, Pilate wouldn't um, get to the position where he is without knowing a bit about justice, without, without having some discerning power in people. I mean, you don't, you don't rise up to a level of prominence that Pilate did without understanding human nature and what makes people tick. And so Pilate, I believe, initiated a plan to free Jesus. Now, the Passover was National Amnesty Day. It was a day in which Rome would extend an act of kindness and goodwill to the Jewish people to placate them, to help keep them happy. They'd release a prisoner of choice to the Jews. That's what we read in verse 6, right? Now, at the feast, Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. That might sound strange to us because our political system doesn't work this way. We don't normally release criminals if they're guilty, right? We lock them up until they pay their complete sentence, right? Maybe they pay partial sentence. Maybe they, whatever, and a board releases them or, or, or whatever. But this type is different. Now, sure, the president can offer pardons. The governor can stay executions, right? But here we're... We're releasing a prisoner, a guilty prisoner, just letting him go free. And, and that doesn't happen in our country, but it happens in Israel today. The land of Israel is, is much like it was in the day of Jesus, only the tables are turned a little bit. Now, now you have the, the Jews or the, the Israelis governing over the Palestinians. The Palestinians have some measure of uh, self-governance. They can do what, what they want to do, but it really is the Israelis who have the the force of the army. They have, Palestinians have their own police squad. They have a, a measure of artillery. But the Israelis really are sovereign, governing over them in all ways. And um, on occasion, there are times when Israel desperately wants peace in the Middle East. They desperately want peace. So they've given up land for peace. And in fact, even they've given up prisoners for peace. They have a slew of Palestinians in the Israeli prison system. Those are terrorists against Israel. They have captured them. But periodically happens from time to time is that the Palestinians will, will capture somebody or will kidnap somebody and hold them ransom and demand that there be some kind of prisoner swap in exchange. Oh, we're going to kill this person. And, and generally what happens is uh, the Israeli government waits a couple years and sees if they can get them or get out. But finally, oftentimes they cave in. So they give one hostage for maybe a hundred prisoners 
and just showing over and over again that they are interested in peace. It's effort for the Israeli government to show that they have kindness and goodwill towards the Palestinian people, those who are their enemies, who vowed to, 1967, push them into the sea when God was with Israel and turned the tables in the Six-Day War. And so Israel got its nation. But the days of Jesus, a similar kind of thing. The Romans used to try to keep peace. One prisoner. Pilate considered Jesus to be the prisoner I'm going to release. That was his plan. But there was another man being held hostage. In verse 7, we read about this man. His name was Barabbas. We read about him that he'd been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Prison was no strange place for Barabbas. He'd been in and out of jail probably on a number of occasions. Probably in first name basis with all the guards. He was the scum of society. No good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. Everybody knew it. Pilate knew it. The people knew it. The crowds knew it. His name, Barabbas, was maybe a little bit like Al Capone, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, pretty, uh, pretty infamous names. So was Barabbas. And on this occasion, Barabbas was imprisoned because of some insurrection that took place and some murder that took place. And, and, and maybe there were some doubts as to Barabbas' involvement in the murders themselves. Because it, it even says that he had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So these insurrectionists against the Roman government and somehow murder had taken place. But the question is, was Barabbas part of that or not? He may have thrust the sword. Or he may not have. I think in some regards, he's just like Osama bin Laden's son, who this week was uh, arrested in New York and is soon to be facing trial in New York. Another trial that the American government and the American people will look. And, and the question with this is, how much involvement did Osama bin Laden's son have with the terrorist attacks against our country? Exact same questions with Barabbas. How, how much involvement did he have? And so, when the crowd began asking Pilate to leave um, release a prisoner for them. Verse 8 says, right, the crowd got up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Right, he released his prisoner. Pilate said, do you want me to release for you king of the Jews? And I think he was expecting the crowd to say, yes, we will take Jesus. And I do believe he was surprised when the crowd turned on him. Right? And they said, to crucify him. They, instead, they wanted Barnabas. They didn't want Jesus. Now, Pilate knew some things. Verse 10 says it was envy that they delivered Jesus up. Pilate knew of the hero's welcome that Jesus had received. Mark chapter 11 tells that just a few days before entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, everyone's hailing him. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so here was Jesus coming in, the, the, um, the hero. They're going to receive him, right? And, and Peter knew it was just envy and, and he was innocent. But the crowds, verse 11, began to ask for Barabbas instead. Now, it's, it's not because they thought of this idea themselves. It, it was the chief priests stirred up the crowds to ask for Barabbas. Right? It's verse 11, what that says. So, in, in other words, it wasn't even the will of the people. It was more the will of the religious leaders had infiltrated the people, so the people merely echo the cause of the religious leaders, and Pilate couldn't believe it. Verse 12, he asks the question again. He says, if you want Barabbas, then what shall I do with 
Him whom you call King of the Jews. And still this king metaphor coming across. It could be mockery. <laughs> the King of the Jews. What do you want with your king? You're rejecting him. And they said, right, verse, 12, verse 13, they shouted back, Crucify him. And even when, when Pilate comes back again to them, verse 14, why? What evil has he done? No explanation here. No justification. No evil. Just crucify him. Crucify him. It became their account, their, their chant. Crucify him. Crucify him. And whatever Peter said, whatever Pilate said, it came to crucify him. Luke's account. We read of Pilate telling the crowd, I have found him no guilt demanding death. And they said, crucify him. Pilate said, I will punish him and then release him to you. At least I'll do something, but I'm not going to kill him. Then I'll release him to you. And they did not want that. They cried out again, crucify him. Crucify him. And in John, we get a, a slightly different slant where Pilate's before the people saying, Behold your king! And they saying, We have no king but Caesar! Liars! They said, Crucify him! And Pilate was getting nowhere. He saw he was getting nowhere. A mob mentality was developing. He knew he was losing ground. Matthew tells us that Pilate saw what he was accomplishing. That he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting. And the last thing Pilate needed was a riot. Because if there was a riot in Jerusalem, it would get back to his governing authorities in Rome and he would be out as governor. And so, wishing to satisfy the crowd, verse 15, wishing to keep his job, Pilate released Barabbas and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Clearly, Jesus is the rejected one. He's the one that was rejected. I trust you see the contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. Jesus was the pure and righteous one. Barabbas was the notorious, criminal, wicked, evil one. Jesus had done no wrong, deserved to be set free. Barabbas had done much wrong and deserved to die for his crimes. And here's the lesson, right? Jesus is the rejected one. We ought to believe in him. Don't be like the crowds who chose Barabbas and chose evil over good. But choose good over evil. And we might comfortably say, oh, I would never make that decision. I, I would never choose Barabbas over Jesus. And I say, well, not so fast. Because in reality, we make the same choice every day. Are you going gonna to love Barabbas and your sin? Are you going to love Jesus and His righteousness? Every day, every way, constantly making a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And I just say this, when you are confronted with an opportunity to walk in righteousness or in sin, it's really the same opportunity this crowd had. The crowd were unbelieving haters of Jesus as they chose Barabbas. And when you sin, you're rejecting Jesus and choosing your Barabbas as well. Stuart Townend captured it well in a song. We've sung it often here at Rock Valley Bible Church. How deep the Father's love for us. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So every time we sin, we're, we're like that. It was my sin that left him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, but the good news is this though, that many of those who shouted out on that day, crucify him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Repented the day of Pentecost. Fifty days later. Remember when Peter stood 
Everybody was assembled in the temple. They began speaking in tongues. And Peter preached this great message about Jesus was the Christ. And he said, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And maybe he could have gone around there and, right, and called the people and said, Darren Weeby, I remember hearing your voice on that day. You were saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. And Chuck Dean, I remember your voice. You were saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. You crucified Him. So Repent. And believe in Him and trust in Him. And that day, 3,000 people, many of whom were in that crowd demanding His crucifixion, repented and believed and became a part of the kingdom, were added to the church and baptized. The same is true for you. You you may choose Barabbas, but I say there's opportunities to choose Jesus and to believe in Him and to trust in the rejected one. Because Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Messiah in whose there's hope. Well, I have one last point this morning which is going to segue us nicely into the Lord's Supper. So, Jesus is the sovereign one. Submit to Him. He's the silent one. Wait for Him. He's the rejected one. Believe in Him. Finally, He's the substituted one. Look at verse 15 again. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and having... Jesus scourged. He handed him over to be crucified. He's got to, you got to catch this here, right? The one who deserved to die was set free and the one who deserved to go free was delivered over to be killed. Scripture tells us that Jesus wasn't the only one killed on that day. In verse 27, we see that there were three crosses. Jesus was crucified there with two robbers. One robber was on his right and one robber was on his left and I trust you've seen pictures, right, with three crosses. I know many churches have three crosses outside their, their building or, you know, put up on some mirror. You've seen those pictures before? Yes, I trust you have. They're like all over the place. Um, on this day, the Romans had prepared three crosses for three criminals. Two of the criminals were thieves and one of the criminals was a notorious criminal one had been arrested in the insurrection because the insurrectionists had murdered and this one perhaps was the murderer. And his name was Barabbas. There was a cross prepared for Barabbas. So catch this. Not only did Barabbas go free, but Jesus took his place on the cross that was reserved for Barabbas. And so when you see of pictures of three crosses, I think it's every bit right to think about Jesus in the middle and the one robber on the right and the one robber on the left and, and think about Jesus. But I, w- I would have you even to think maybe behind that a little bit and just think about three crosses there, two thieves and Barabbas is what should have been. But Jesus was there instead of Barabbas. Jesus was substituted. That's a great picture of what He's done for us who believe, right? Jesus has taken our place. We are Barabbas, right? The wage of sin is death. We, we deserve to be there upon the cross. And yet, what has Jesus done? He willingly took up the cross for us. He became our substitute. This, this concept of substitution is like key and crucial to understanding the Gospel. Charles Spurgeon once summarized the theory of atonement by saying this, there, there are in the world many theories of atonement. 
Okay? There's lots of different ways that people look at how Jesus died, whether he just died as an example, or he died as a ransom for Satan, whether he died as an expiatory sacrifice, or whether he died as a propitiatory sacrifice. And, and Spurgeon nails it all down. He says, in all these theories of atonement, I cannot see any atonement in any except one, except this doctrine of substitution. That is the key to the atonement. And that's the good news, right? Jesus died in your place as a substitute for you. Second Corinthians 5.21, right? He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Everything that we were, Jesus took on. Everything Jesus was, we take on by faith and trust in Him. And that simple truth of substitution is what causes us to gather here every week. It's what drives us back to the Bible to read of, of what God has done for us, to be reminded of this again and again. It, it's, it's just what drives us to, to meet with other Christians and to, to spread this great good news of the gospel is that Jesus died in our place. We deserve death, but He died. He deserved life so that now we live because we believe in Him. And the passages in the Bible that teach this are numerous. i got a list of about ten here. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He lays down his life in our place. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Christ died instead of us dying. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins. Our sins deserve death, but Christ died instead of us. Galatians 2.20 The Son of God loved me and delivered Himself up for me. In other words, Jesus was, was delivered up on my behalf instead of me. Ephesians 5, verse 2 Christ gave Himself for us. He gave Himself up for us. He was delivered up in our place for us instead of us. Titus 2.14 Christ gave Himself up for us. Hebrews 10.12 Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. 1 Peter 2.21 Christ Jesus suffered for you in your place. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. 1 John 3.16 He laid down His life for us. His life for us in our place. He was our substitute. Now, I want you to think a little bit about Barabbas and his experience. One moment, he's on death row awaiting his trip to that third cross. The next moment, set free. He can go home, see his mother. He can hop on his donkey, gallop on down or trot on down to his local restaurant and get a falafel. Right? He's carousing with his friends. He can do that. I mean, he has freedom. To, to, to go about his sinful life is really what, what he did. But he, he was free then out of the penalty of death. And if he had trusted Christ forever, he would know life. And actually, if you trust him in Christ, you're free from your sin. He took all of our punishment. You no longer have a sentence of death against you. You are free. How are you going to use that freedom? There, there is a way... Uh, we're we're going to get this about how, yes, we are free. We are free to love Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.15 says this. It says, um, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. In other words, Jesus died for us. Now we're free. Not free to pursue our sin, but now free to pursue our love 
for God in every way. And we see the suffering that Jesus took here in verses 16 and following. And what I want you to do is as I walk through this, I just want us to see how much Jesus suffered in our place. Because we can take each of these verses and say, okay, why, why has this happened to Jesus? Well, it happened to Jesus so there could be a turn of events and something better happens to us. Verse 16, the soldiers took him away to the palace, it's the praetorium, called together the whole Roman cohort. So it's just a change of scenery again, just like verse 1, is a change of scenery, and they go out there, and here he is, they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Here they're, they're mocking him, right, in this, this robe of purple, like in a, a, a kingly crown. They also took this kingly robe. They also took this crown of thorns, pierced it upon his head and mocked him as a king. But they're identifying him as a, as a king, mocking him, hailing him as king of the Jews. And I just say this, he wore a crown of thorns that we might wear a crown of glory. This crown was to mock him and he, that we deserve that crown of thorns. But he took that so we could receive the crown of righteousness, which Paul is looking forward to. Second Timothy four eighteen. Verse eighteen. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews, right? They're mocking him. And I just say this Jesus was mocked so that we might be honored. In other words, they they, they attacked Jesus to change so that we might be trophies of God's grace forever. Verse 19, they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeing, kneeling and bowing before him. And I said this, he was beaten that we might be healed. Right? Remember Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. It's by his taking the punishment for us that actually becomes our healing balm. Verse 20, after they had mocked him, they took a purple robe off of him and put his own garments on them. And I would say that he was stripped of his royal clothes that we might be clothed with his clothes. There was a way to kind of, they, it's almost like they're de-kinging him, right? They took off this, this purple robe that they had put on him and they stripped him so that we could be clothed. Verse 20, right? They, they led him out to crucify him. He was put to a painful death that we might enjoy pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, in His presence, our pleasures forevermore come about because of His death. Verse 21, He was pressed into service. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear His cross. It speaks of the weakness of Jesus. He was weak that we might become strong. And I say the lesson here for us is clear. Jesus is the substituted one, so let us trust in Him. Let us trust in this, this sacrifice that has taken our place. Well, there is, I've already mentioned a little bit, there, there's a way that as Jesus suffered, so that is the path of believers to take. I'm going to join with Him in His sufferings. Through many tribulations we shall enter His kingdom of God. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If, if they hated Me, they will hate you also. I mean, this is a message Jesus said, right? Take up the cross. If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him take up his cross and follow Me. I want to close my message this morning with a, 
thoughts here on verse 21. In recent days, I've been reading about a, a pastor named Charles Simeon. He was a pastor in England during the late 18, 1700s and early 1800s. He was a faithful man who influenced many in his lifetime. In his church, he faced much conflict. He was in the Anglican church, and, and so he was appointed by a bishop to his role as pastor. The congregation did not want him. They were a worldly congregation, and they wanted somebody else, but they got him. And so he faced some conflict, especially in those early days of ministry. And um, he wasn't received well, and um, because he was... He was uh, appointed from the top. So the people protested in the ways that they could. And one of the ways they protested is that they locked their pews. Okay, the, the pews, if you've seen an old church, like I think um, like Old North Church in Boston, I think it's a little bit like that. Each of the pews kind of come and they got like a little door, right, in order to get into the pew. You've seen that before. And uh, people would pay for a pew. That's one way to increase giving. I suppose we could do that a little bit. Right? They, they did that. And the people who didn't like him right, are the people of the church who owned the pews. And so they simply locked their pew, didn't come on Sunday mornings, and left that pew open. And so if you came to a Holy Trinity Church um, on a Sunday morning for the first dozen years of his ministry, you'd be sitting in the aisles. He was preaching hours because he couldn't get people into the pews because they were locked. Now, of course, you could climb over and things like that, but it, I don't know how it's all, uh, why they couldn't just get keys, a master key, and walk down. They're not here anyway, right? They're sleeping in bed, right? And you could have opened it all up, I'm not sure, but that was the climate. And furthermore, the people there didn't like him, rather they wanted somebody else, and so they didn't allow him to preach on Sunday evening. He had the Sunday morning pulpit to the aisles, but Sunday evening, they had their own choice for the lecturer who got to preach on Sunday evening. So he was prohibited to preach from his church. And so here you got two people in the church. The one who's got the authority been assigned by the bishop and the one who's the people's choice is a worldly choice. And you got this, this battle going on. And what Charles Simeon even had to do was if he's going to preach to his people, he even went and, and rented out another room in someone else's church so that the people of his church could kind of go and he could teach them and shepherd them there rather than in his own church building. All convoluted, okay? It's just, it's just nasty stuff. But he was there, and um, uh, he endured through these trials, ended up pastoring there for 54 years. So a dozen years of being locked out of the pews, but it was even 30 years before the, the times really changed in the church. I mean, it took him that long to prove himself to his people and finally convince them of that. But he found strength in verse 21. Listen to what he wrote. He said this, Many years ago, when I was an object of much contempt and derision in this university, he was in Cambridge, so right there had a lot of university students and um, kind of the church is more connected and everything. He says, I strolled forth one day, buffeted and afflicted with my little testament in hand. He had his New Testament in hand and he was afflicted and feeling the, the turmoil. He said, I prayed earnestly to my God that he would comfort me with some cordial from his word and that on opening the book, I might find some text to sustain me. Right? He played Bible roulette, which I know some people have done. And it's not been so good. Some people have found good. He played Bible roulette. I don't recommend it, but he did. He had his little, little New Testament there and he said this, I, I thought I would turn to the epistles where I'd most easily find some precious promise, but my book was upside down. 
So instead of turning to the epistles in the back, he turned to the gospels in back. And the first text which caught my eye was this. They found, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And Charles Simeon wrote, You know Simon is the same name as Simeon. And what a word of instruction was here. What a blessed hint for my encouragement to have the cross laid upon me that I might bear it after Jesus. What a privilege. It was enough. Now I could leap and sing for joy as one whom Jesus was honoring with a participation in his suffering. And when I read that, I said, Lord, lay it on me. Lay it on me. I will gladly bear the cross for thy sake. And so, Charles Simeon found great comfort here from these words about Simon of Cyrene. Even devotionally seeing that as his name. And Jesus says, here, will you bear my cross? And that is what we're all called to do as believers and followers of Jesus Yes, we can rejoice and trust in who He is. He's a sovereign one. We submit to Him. He's a silent one, so we wait for Him. He's the rejected one, so we believe in Him. He's a substituted one, so we trust in Him. But, but all this leads us to carrying His cross. And when you carry His cross, you can do what the disciples did about when they were beaten and flogged, just like Jesus was, Acts 5, verse 40. They called the apostles in, and for preaching in the name of Jesus, they flogged them, in order them not to speak any more in the name of Jesus, and then release them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And there is very much an aspect where, yes, Jesus is these things, we need to trust him, but there is a very much a sense where Jesus suffered as an example for us to follow in his steps. So we ought to be those who, who know who we are who know that we are a child of the king. And we aren't the king, right? We, we, aren't, we aren't accused of being the king, but we are accused of being followers of the king. We ought to be accused of submitting to Jesus. We ought to be characterized by those who silently wait for him and believe in him and trust in him for all things. And we have an opportunity right now, as so we're doing every Sunday in Lent, uh, this Sunday and two more, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's really an opportunity for us to identify with the suffering one, the one who took the bread and the fruit of the vine said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remember to me. Took, taking the cup, said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Right, All placed upon our hope and trust in Him. So as you all know, it's 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about how we ought to take this reverently. We ought to take it seriously and, and trust in Him and pray to Him and seek Him during this time of communion with Him. So let's pray together as we prepare to celebrate the supper. Father, I thank You for Jesus who suffered in our stead, who was the sacrificial Passover lamb. I pray for us, O Lord, that we might think much upon His sacrifice, think much, O Lord, upon His death for us in our place. God, I pray that He would be our strength, that You would strengthen us even now. This is a unique time. God, when we we celebrate as you told us to by doing something strange, eating bread and, and drinking from this cup, eating and drinking symbols, 
which point to you. And I pray today as we even thought about this trial of how you were unjustly accused and condemned to death. May we praise the Lord that injustice has come upon you so that similar injustice may come upon us. God, because if things were perfectly just, you'd have been let free. And if things were perfectly just, we'd have been condemned in our sin. And yet you were unjust to Jesus so that you could be just to us. Being just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus because you punished him in our stead. And so, Lord, I pray that you would visit us, be with us, help us to see afresh the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who's redeemed us from our sins. Help us to celebrate this morning as redeemed sinners, God who love Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.